0: Good morning everyone, good morning and welcome to Old Providence Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. As you're coming in, I should have said this already, do make sure that you have a bulletin. Like I said last week, it has all the songs we're going to be singing today, other important information, certainly announcements, uh, but also scripture passage, Lord's Prayer, Apostles Creed. It is your one-stop shopping for what you need for worship this morning, so make sure that you grab one of these. Um, What a joy it is to be in this place that the Lord has provided so that we can come together and worship Him outside of the, the, or inside from the dreariness that's outside, coming into the light inside. The Lord has blessed us in so many ways. And again, I thank you for your patience. We are looking forward, still planning to be back in the sanctuary by Easter, and uh, really looking forward to that together. Now, As we come together, let me just point you to your bulletin and encourage you to be aware of the goings-on, okay? I will say that youth group is not meeting tonight here at 5.30. Instead, we are meeting at the Mance starting at 6 o'clock. So no youth group at 5.30 here. Mance, 6 o'clock tonight. Also be aware of the baby bottle campaign. There's a, well, I put a clock in front of the poster back there. But there's the baby bottles around. That's where we're collecting spare change For comfort care crisis women's pregnancy center Um, so be aware of that if you have any questions you can see Sylvia or or others and we'll be happy to help with that Um, let's see other things you'll find an announcement about the cemetery um, a single ladies lunch coming up and really all sorts of things now a little different this morning last week there was a moment for missions in the bulletin and now it didn't work out last week but God works all things out in his providence Uh, But now I'd like to welcome Pat Patterson up to speak for a moment
1: about missions. With the focus on the moment. Yes. Good morning. Uh, One of the things that uh, is a joy is I got assigned to evangelism and outreach this year. And the process of that, um, in, in discussion, we decided to have some moment for missions to let people know what's going on. The first thing I want to tell you is I had a conversation at dinner uh, Friday night with Carol Mish, and she talked about how well things went down at uh, the mission, and uh, we fed over 65 people, and for all those that contribute to that, all the youth that went to help feed and all that, thank you, okay? Great job. All right, I want to read a scripture verse this morning that uh, Comes in a time frame that that uh, a lot of crazy stuff going on around the world. A lot of people talking about end times and all this, and, and for all the wrong reasons. There's one verse in scripture that you and I need to pay attention to. Anytime someone mentions the word end times, and it comes from Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and Jesus says, "And this, the gospel of the kingdom." will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. As Patrick often says, Christ come. If you want Christ to come, for you and I, is to get the message around the world to his elect. So there's a chance for that. Most of y'all know I'm involved with training to sin and uh, I put in the bulletin last week, and I'll just remind you, um, from May until the end of the year, there were over 5,900 new believers baptized in Africa, in West Africa mostly, in Pakistan. The reality is, for them, a baptism <coughs> is a significant change of life. Whether you're coming out of the African religion or you come out of muslim when you make a proclamation and baptize it's over you got a new life where you want it or not so the decision for baptism is very real it's interesting that the countries where we've seen the greatest persecution is where we're having the largest number of baptisms sierra leone togo uh but the time joe was here last uh, fall We've had uh, two house churches burned out in the Central African Republic. It's just the gospel has taken off. So uh, that is you know, a great report for us in that uh, the reality of, of uh, how we minister in Africa and Pakistan. Some of y'all know about the envelopes in the back, uh, the envelopes around. But most of us who are new to New Providence, I mean Old Providence, (laughs) finally did that. I've been waiting for the day that would happen. (laughs) Uh, For those that don't know, I was actually born and raised in New Providence, so that's uh, a part of my life. I spent two years here in youth group in my last two years in high school. But in the reality of of making uh, donations to missions, this church handles it differently in any place I've been. So if you're new, when you see an item in the budget for missions, whether it's WRE, whether it's any of the, uh, the Whit family, whether it's Train to Send or local missions, if you donate to that line item, it goes to that cause. If you don't, if we don't sustain the, what's in the budget. Then at the end of the year, the church makes up the difference out of the out of the budget. But if you want money to go to any of these missionaries, you know, either put it on your line item and memo on the on a check. Use your envelopes or use the envelopes in the back. Thank you. I think I took your stuff. No, you're good. I would have come to hunt
0: you down if you'd taken my sermon with you. Yes, now thank you very much, Pat, and I appreciate especially your comments on End Times. Sensational topic, and and I don't mean sensational as in really good. I mean, people are talking about these sort of things. We see the wars, the rumors of wars, all of this kind of stuff. But really, if you want Jesus to come back, we know that he is not coming back until the very last one that will accept him, the very last one whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Until that individual comes to know Jesus, he's not coming back. And as Paul pondered, how how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear if someone doesn't preach? And how will that person preach if they are not sent? Hence our commitment to missions in particular. So thank you, Pat. Now, um, there are other things going on, but I'm going to let you find those. As we pray today, as you are praying this week, um, we need to remember Shirley Fix. She was taken to AMC Hospital last night because of a really bad case of the flu. Okay, I spoke with her. She's doing okay. She's hoping that she's going to get out today. Okay, but nevertheless, uh, please do be in prayer for her, but also others. It's a sickness, y'all, it is, it is going around. But nevertheless, keep these things in mind. Again, I welcome you. Let's now prepare our hearts for worship as Donna leads us in the prayer room. Mm. Call to worship today comes from Psalm 48, in which we read of God's power not only in the world but of His power to establish His people. Now, we're going to hear the term Zion here, but realize that as God talks about Zion, Mount Zion in particular, this is synonymous with His kingdom, with His people. And so it's important. That means this is for you and me. In Psalm 48, we read that the Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, rising splendidly is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, is the city of the great king. God is known as a stronghold in its citadels. Look, the kings assembled. They advanced together. They looked and froze with fear. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there. Agony like that of a woman in labor. As you wreck the ships of Tarshish with the east wind. Just as we heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of armies. and the city of our God. God will establish it forever. God, within your temple, we contemplate your faithful love. Like your name, God, so your praise Reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with justice. Mount Zion is glad. Judah's villages rejoice because of your judgments. Go around Zion and circle it. Count its towers. Note its ramparts. Tour its citadels so that you can tell a future generation. This God, our God, forever and ever, he will always lead us. And indeed, my friends, this is the message of God's word. This is the promise of God to his people across all ages. And what a reason we have in this to worship him now. Let's now take our inserts as we turn to number 132 right there at the front. And as we stand together and sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's stand. Thank you. You may be seated. Now let's take this time to go to our Lord in prayer. We we call it the inv- invocation, where we invoke God to be a part of this time. But it's He that has called us to worship. So let's go to Him in prayer now. After which we'll pray the Lord's prayer. And then we'll confess the Apostles' Creed, both of which are found in your insert. But let's go to him now. Our God and our Father, we praise you for what we have read, for what we have lifted up. That Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. That Zion is established firmly. And we are waiting for the commencement of Zion. The commencement of your kingdom. The second coming of Christ where all things are made new. We are waiting for this. ...with eager anticipation. Yet, Father, you give us so many blessings. You give us so many glimpses of heaven, one of which is this time right now. As we know that we are gathered together as your people, with you calling us here... ...and we're reflecting that great heavenly worship service going on right now. So would you guide us in this time, Father? Let it, let it be pleasing to you as we pray, as we sing, as we go to your word... Let all of these things proclaim your name on high. We pray these things in Christ's name and we also pray as he taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen indeed. And now, as we say the Apostles' Creed, let me ask you, Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen indeed. And so now as we continue in our time, let's stand again as we sing hymn number 111, O God, our help in ages past. And pay attention to the words as we sing them. Please stand with me. Thank you. you may be seated. At this time, children may be dismissed for Children's Church, but as they're being dismissed, let's take this time to go to our Lord in silent prayer as we consider his blessings to us, as we consider all those ways in which he ministers to us and those things that he would have us do to be a blessing to his people, certainly to one another. So let's go to our Lord in silent prayer now. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness to us, for all the ways in which you have intervened in our lives, for all the blessings that you have brought our way, for all of the protection that you have offered, and that's just in our life as we think about what you have done for your people in establishing a people for yourself. To use the words of your son when he promised that he would build his church and, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. All of these things point to your magnificence, to your love, to your mercy. And yet, Father, as we gaze upon you in all of your splendor, we must, we must see who we are. That you have loved us. That you have redeemed and are redeeming a people for yourself. And yet, knowing you and loving you means honest consideration of those things that we need to submit to you. Those things that we need to seek forgiveness for. That we need to repent of and, and turn around and go the other way. Those lies that we may have told ourselves. Those priorities that may be askew. Oh, Father, we don't know where to start with these things, but we're grateful that we don't have to just figure this out. You've given us your Holy Spirit. So please, with penitent hearts, let us evaluate ourselves and our relationship with you and seek your face, seeking forgiveness. And let us be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, to his guiding, to his conviction to those things that you would have us do, those things that you would have us see and admit. Father, we face challenges to this, certainly. The challenges of life mount up, whether it is of the physical variety. And we pray for Shirley this morning. We thank you that she was able to even get a bed as so many are sick with the flu and COVID and other things. We pray that this time would be effective for her, that you would restore her to health and bring her home soon. Um, And for others that are struggling with sickness, you know what we're facing and we pray that you would intervene. But Whether it is the physical that, that serves as a hindrance or maybe it's the emotional, that we get weary, that we grieve, that we mourn the loss of loved ones, that we mourn the loss of relationship with those that aren't gone but perhaps something is fractured. Whatever it is, Father, we pray that you would intervene in those situations as well as we think about not only the physical and the emotional, as we think about the spiritual. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would see with your eyes that our priorities would be your priorities. And that in doing so, recognizing this grand privilege that you have given to us, that we would be faithful not only us but your church universal would be faithful in proclaiming the greatness of Christ Jesus and we pray all of these things in Christ's name Amen Thank you very much, choir. What an excellent reminder of who God is, who He has called us to be, and His promises to us. Well, my friends, to say that I've been excited about today is an understatement. If you were here last week, you'll know that we finished our time in the book of Philippians. That wonderful little epistle, such a small portion of God's Word, but so chock full of of convicting, teaching, all, all sorts of commands, and this beautiful call to trust in Christ. And to love one another. But but we're done with Philippians. And where shall we go next? Well, you probably already know, I'm sure, because you've either seen it in the sermon title uh, or in the bulletin. Or you've seen it in our little worship packet there, for lack of a better term. That's right. Today, we move on to Ezra. Ezra. Now, you'll find Ezra after 2 Chronicles and before Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me to Ezra 1. But as you're turning there, why Ezra? Let's be honest about something. Ezra is not an often preached book of the Bible. As I look back on my 22 years, I've been in the ministry now for 22 years, I've never preached a sermon on Ezra. And I don't recall hearing a sermon on Ezra. And I've heard a lot of sermons. I, I find it to be one of the most overlooked and underpreached books of the Bible. But that's not why we're going here. Okay. This isn't an effort to be unique. No. Instead it's the message of Ezra that is so very important. And, and what's important because the, though Ezra details the, the history of ancient Israel. Yet what's so important about it is that it's so applicable to you and me today. And yes. We're talking about a time long past here. 2,500 years ago, in fact. But here's the thing, and you all know I, I often challenge you on this. Do not fall into the trap that so many do as they consider God's word. Yes, Ezra was written around 2,500 years ago. But I don't think for a moment that it isn't relevant to you and me today. It's the book of Ezra. It's written in time and space about events that took place in that time and in that space. But remember, this is God's word for all time, for God's people. And so what we hear in Ezra today is what we need to hear. The principles revealed in Ezra, principles that that we really need to see, yes, us Here at Old Providence, right now, 2024, the truths revealed in Ezra are not new truths, but they are truths that we need to be reminded of. And the context that we see these truths in is struggle. Where we find these truths is in the midst of struggle. But not the kind of struggle that we usually talk about when we use that term. That that term struggle is most often used in relation to difficult circumstances. I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, and so forth. And and let me be clear, certainly there are some very difficult circumstances in Ezra. But physical struggles are secondary to the real struggle that's going on in Ezra. Or struggles... Because the book of Ezra really is divided between two key struggles throughout. First, God's people face the struggle of returning to, to Judah, to Jerusalem, after captivity and rebuilding. Not only the temple, God's house of worship, but also Jerusalem itself. Now, Ezra focuses on the temple, but we know that's the task at hand. But here's the reality. We're not just talking about a physical rebuilding. Hence, the second struggle for God's people was to get back on track, spiritually speaking, to bring newness of life to their relationship with God. They faced the struggle to remember who they were and who God is and to return to proper worship of Him. Now, Let's compare them to us while none of us are trying to rebuild a physical temple. You've got to admit, it is a little interesting, though this is not what influenced me. It is a little interesting that we've got this sanctuary project underway. It's not the same, okay? I just think it's fascinating that we're reading about this. They've got to come back to Jerusalem. They've got to rebuild the temple. We're working in the sanctuary. But, it, it, but the deeper thing, while we're not trying to rebuild a temple, Well, we're not trying to rebuild Spotswood or even a kingdom, really, because, yet we're talking about the temple, we're talking about Jerusalem. This is God's people trying to rebuild an entire kingdom, right? While we don't face those things, should we not be involved in a constant effort to build our relationship with the Lord? Should we not be in a constant effort to build His kingdom? That kingdom that... You know, we just prayed for it, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. All of these different things, right? We pray it every single week. Shouldn't we be involved in that struggle? Both as individuals and the church? Indeed, we should. And so Ezra is, I cannot stress how important it is for you and me today. Now, with all that being said, let's go to God's word. And we're going to start at the start. Ezra, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. But first, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our God and our Father, as we come to your word now, to this section of your word, which is often overlooked, that some people just reduce it to a history, a telling of events that happen. Father, let us not fall into that trap. Let us remember that, yes, it's Ezra, but this is your word for your people. And as such, these words are the words of life. Without your Holy Spirit, we will not hear them. Without your Holy Spirit, we will not be convicted by them. On our own, we can't do anything. Oh, but with you, Father, you do the impossible. So please, work in our hearts now and guide us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Ezra chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. It says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it into writing. Verse 2. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a house, build him a house, at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods and livestock along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. And we're going to stop reading right there. Thus we find the beginning of Ezra. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant and infallible word. Amen and amen. All right, so Ezra, this little preached or not often preached uh, portion of God's word, what in the world is going on here? Let's just start out with the obvious. Ezra is a fascinating book for lots of different reasons, but certainly because of how it begins. It doesn't have that typical kind of introduction thing that we get used to, especially in the New Testament, right, where in the New Testament you find out who the, 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 the letter, most of the time in the New Testament is a letter, you find out who the letter's going to, you find out who's writing the letter, you find out all the circumstances, it's right there. But we don't get that here. It doesn't have that typical introduction. Ezra doesn't name himself as the author, for instance. And, but In fact, we don't even see who the author is for a few chapters, but rest assured, it, it is Ezra. So who even is Ezra? Well, Ezra is a direct descendant of Moses' brother, Aaron. So we know that makes him a Levite, right? We know that that makes him a priest. But as we'll see as we go through Ezra, we're also going to see he's not just a priest. He's a scholar. He is one who has studied God's word and God's law, not just for the head, not just to attain knowledge. As we're going to see, well, I'll go ahead and read it right now. Ezra 7.10, and we'll get there, but not today, don't worry. right? But Ezra 7.10 tells us that Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So we find out that Ezra is not just a priest, he's someone who has dedicated himself to not only knowing God's word, but to practicing God's word. You know, we see this concept echoed in the New Testament, don't we? Paul, as he would write to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he said, be diligent to study, to show yourself approved to God as one, or as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. So it was with Ezra all these years earlier. He was committed to knowing God's word, following God's word, and teaching God's word. Now again, all of that is coming. But what we have here today is just this little interesting start. But even in this little interesting start, we get a reasonable idea of what... Ezra's going to be about when Ezra was written um, and, and why it was written. We can see it right there in verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read them again. We just read them. But it says, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build his house or to build him a house at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. May he go to Jerusalem and in Ju- in Judah And build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Now Ezra begins this way in order for the reader, for you and for me, to have some direction of where he's actually going to end up going. And what we find out is that Ezra is going to be, as I've talked about, about rebuilding the temple. But also that deeper struggle of God's people returning to Jerusalem where they themselves are going to be rebuilt. And y'all, read between the lines here. Think about these two struggles. Rebuilding the temple and, and rebuilding right relationship with God, returning to worship. My goodness, think about it. You know, one of these struggles involves tearing down that which had almost entirely been destroyed. It involves removing rubble casting aside things that used to mean a whole lot and returning to things that still had great value. One of these struggles involved deciding what to keep and what to get rid of and also honest assessment of real dangers from enemies that didn't want that rebuilding to take place. And of course there was internal fighting about this struggle that went along with that. And did I mention they also had to rebuild a temple? Catch my drift there? The easy part was the physical. The hard part was getting real about their relationship or lack thereof with the Lord and what had gotten them there in the first place. And my friends, isn't that the hard part for us too? Now, I don't want to belittle, I don't want to make light of the struggles that we face of a physical variety. They are very real. And they can be varied, right? We, we can grow ill, we can have accidents, we can develop medical conditions and so forth that are struggles, and I'm not saying we don't. In fact, some of these conditions can lead to lifelong change or even lead to death itself. But you know, this life is only temporary. Sometimes in this life we deal with difficult circumstances, not of a physical variety, but of a trying nature, certainly. I'm not trying to belittle those either. When people disappoint us, we struggle. When, when we disappoint people, we have to deal with the consequences. When, when relationships become fractured, these are just examples. But they indicate some of the struggles we face as we go through life. But those are not the constant. What is a constant struggle in this life is the spiritual struggle that we face. And Ezra points us to that. Think about what the Apostle Paul said, the first book of the Bible that I preached through when I came here, Ephesians. Ephesians 6.12, Paul tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That means the source of our struggle, it's really not each other. We can struggle with relationships, different things. Our struggle really isn't about the physical side of this life, though indeed we can be trying, again, I'm not trying to belittle that, but our struggle is not against flesh and blood, continuing on in in Ephesians 6, 12, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Y'all, our real struggle, our constant struggle, is with our spirituality, with who we really are. That's why Paul would also write in Colossians 3.9 that we struggle against the old one inside of us. Our, our sinful nature, our, our inclination to not have right relationship with God, but to only please ourselves and our desires. So again, even though Ezra was written 2,500 years ago, it still applies to us today. Now, uh, let's get back to some preliminary stuff. To that end, how would Ezra begin his work? And even deeper and more important, how would God breathe out his word through Ezra? Where do we even start? Well, we've read where we start. In, in the introduction, Ezra tells us some important details about why Ezra is being written. We've talked about those because the Lord has worked in Cyrus, all of those things. And and, and it also tells us when, at least it gives us some ballpark figures of when to work with. Right there in verse 1 we find out that the start of this story is in the historical telling of what took place, verse 1a, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. Now, pause right there for a second. This is one of those intersections where external history, archaeology, all of those things agree with God's word. We we know these things to be true because they're in the Bible. They are affirmed by what has been found in actual historical documents, in actual uh, archaeology, right? Um, As far as the when, we know that the story begins. What this is talking about is the year 539 B.C. Now, we know that because Cyrus became a king in 559 when his father died, but that was over a smaller kingdom. He wouldn't become king of Persia. Right, the Persian emperor until Babylon was defeated and that was in 539. And we also know that this issue, uh, this decree that he issued, it didn't come across until the next year which was 538. And remember this is BC, okay, before Christ. So the years don't go up like ours do. It was 2023, now it's 2024. Because it's before Christ, the years are counting down to when Jesus was born, okay. If you've ever wondered why they go backwards, ours go forward. That's, uh, again, your Jeopardy piece for tonight. But just because that's when the story was starting here doesn't mean that's when the book of Ezra was finished. How do we know? Because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are really considered one book, they detail all sorts of things that took place after this initial decree that we've read about. But at least we have some idea. Probably Ezra wasn't finished until the late to mid 400s. But much more important than the date that this was written Right at the start. Of all the ways that God could breathe out his word through Ezra. Of all the ways that we could be told the story of Israel's struggle to rebuild. Much more important than the date and the placement is the truths. The truths that we find in just these first few verses. Truths that we got to pay attention to. And the first truth is this. Are you ready? God always keeps his word. I'll say that again. The first truth that we see from Ezra is God always keeps his word. God always keeps his promises. Why do I say this? Well, we just read the very start of verse 1. Let's read the whole thing. It says in verse 1, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of the king. Uh, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it into writing. Now, getting back to this, why do I say that God always keeps His word? Well, it's in verse one that we find out that Cyrus, king of Persia, issues this decree, and you need to realize he does this not because he's a nice guy. In fact. If you look at history and archaeology, you find out that the Persian war machine is one of the most devastating and ruthless military regimes in the history of all history. There was a movie um, not too long ago, it was called 300, and it was graphic and horrible, that's all about the Persians and the rise of the Persian Empire and taking on Sparta. These are the people that we are talking about here. They're not nice, okay? King Cyrus issues this decree also not even because he thought this move would be politically expedient. You know, think about it. In terms of politics, why would the king of Persia help to restore another kingdom? They had that whole, you know, empire thing going on, right? So that doesn't make sense. No, instead we see in verse 1 that King Cyrus of Persia issued this decree, this proclamation, because of two reasons. First, King Cyrus issued this decree, verse 1, in order to fulfill the word of Jehovah spoken through Jeremiah. That's the first reason. And second, because again, look at verse 1, Jehovah, the Lord, roused the spirit of King Cyrus. The Lord roused his spirit. Now, let's take the first. What's all this business about Jeremiah? Who who is Jeremiah? Well, there's a book of the Bible that's written by him actually too. But Jeremiah was God's prophet. He had been sent to Judah prior to 586 B.C. to bring a message of judgment to God's people, to, to bring a message of warning. Jeremiah went and he warned God's people 70 years prior to this that if they didn't turn back to the Lord, if they didn't turn loose their idols, their false gods and goddesses, if they didn't return to the Lord, the Lord would destroy Jerusalem. Then in fact, he would send his servant from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, is who we know that servant to be. He would send his servant to bring judgment. And y'all, that's what God did. And Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. And God's people, the ones who lived, they were carted off into captivity in Babylon. That's where we learn about those people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, right? But God didn't only pronounce judgment through Jeremiah, no. He also promised faithfulness. He said that he was going to preserve a group of people for himself and that he would return them when the time was right after 70 years. Interestingly enough, we find that promise many times throughout Jeremiah. But most notably, it's just ironic, and it goes with something we talked about recently, Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Now, what does this have to do with recently? Maybe you remember we talked about folk Christianity in America and how different times have different key verses. Right? Billy Graham in that era was John 3.16. Then in the 80s, it was Philippians 4.13 where, where we were. But y'all, the verse of our age is the very next one that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Oh, they're on bumper stickers, they're on mugs, they love to put them on these graduation bookmarks, all that kind of stuff. But much like we talked about with Philippians 4.13, I said Philippians 4.13 wasn't written so Evander Holyfield, the boxer, could put it on his boxing trunks and then hope to knock the other guy out before he got knocked out, right? In the same way, Jeremiah 29.11 is given to a a group of people that have just received a pronouncement of judgment, you dig? So the way we use it is not exactly how God used it. But nevertheless, um, Jeremiah 29.11 is not how God wants all of you to be happy healthy, and wealthy, and you're never going to have problems. In fact, the verse before shows that big problems were coming because his people had turned away from him. God was about to smite them for their wickedness. Now, that's, that's for another sermon, but we see the truth in Ezra 1 that even though this was the case, God always keeps his word. And in keeping his word, the second truth that we must recognize, here it is, it's number two, truth number two, is that not only does God keep his word, God is able to do the impossible in order to keep his word. I'll say that again. God is able to do the impossible in order to keep his word. Now, why do I say this? Well, just think about the impossible thus far in what we've read. That Cyrus, the king of Persia, would issue such a degree is impossible by our reckoning. By human logic and reason, he shouldn't be starting other kingdoms. He should be bolstering his own. But God keeps his word and does the impossible to keep it. And then consider what else we've read that we don't even have time to get to this week. And Donna, I sent Donna a preaching schedule. I try to do this. I'm already breaking my preaching schedule after one week and I'm sorry about that. I'll get back to it soon enough. But we've got to come back to this next week because we're, we're really we're running out of time here. But nevertheless, y'all... The fact that Cyrus not only issued this decree, but that he recognized that he's God's appointed servant to do this. And when we get into what we find in the book of Isaiah, written hundreds of years before this ever took place. You know, Jeremiah came just prior to Judah's destruction. Isaiah came to Judah before even that and warned them. Isaiah also made promises about God preserving them. And Isaiah named Cyrus by name. Before Babylon even knew that Cyrus existed, before Cyrus was ever king of a little kingdom, God named that Cyrus would be his servant to accomplish these things. But not only that, y'all, not only is Cyrus decreeing this to happen, think about the impossible nature of the fact that Cyrus and the Persians are even going to finance this rebuilding. I've got to tell you, y'all, and I hope you don't take offense at this, but I was talking to some pastor colleagues this week about what I would be preaching, and I said, I face a gigantic temptation to make the first sermon title, We're Going to Rebuild the Temple, and the Persians are going to pay for it. Right? <laughs> I wanted to do that so bad. And Amanda's like, I don't know about that. So I didn't, I didn't put that in the bulletin, but I just had to sh- But y'all, that, that's what's going on here. They're going to rebuild the temple, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem, and it's going to be from the cedars of Lebanon that they do these things. It's going to be from the free will offerings of the Persians. Y'all, God is able to do the impossible to keep His word. How is any of this possible? Well, these two truths that we see. And the application for you and me today right now is what? Well, there are many, and this is where we're going to pick up next week. But the first is that if God could do the impossible then, he can do the impossible now. He hasn't changed. Nothing is beyond his power. No situation is too far gone, and no person is too far gone either. If he could work in Cyrus' heart, Cyrus, who didn't even trust in the God of Judah, you know, some people make a big mistake and they're like, oh, well, Cyrus must know God. <clears throat> he doesn't know God. If you pay close attention to what we read, he talks about your God. The God of Israel is not Cyrus's God. But if the Lord could work in Cyrus's heart, that means that he can work in the heart of the person that you may be struggling with. He may be able, or, or, or maybe even working in your heart right now. I know he is in mine. And it's all by the power of his Holy Spirit, which is what uh, roused Cyrus' heart. And, And God can do that with you too. Not only in terms of the spiritual, the physical, I don't know what you're facing, but the Lord is able to do the impossible to keep his word. The question is, will you listen? That was the central dilemma of the people of Judah as they were going back. You know, this isn't just a few years later. This is 70 years, two generations of God's people have passed. And it's time for them to go back. Would they listen? We'll get to them, but the question is, will you listen? Are you open to God's working? Are you yielding to His Spirit? Do you believe that God can change the unchangeable? That as Ephesians 3.20 says, Christ is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask. Than you could ever imagine. Because He can and He does. But will you trust Him to do it? If you know Him, will you continue to turn to Him? But if you don't know Him, if you are here today and you know that Jesus isn't Lord of your life, if you don't have a personal daily relationship with Him where you turn to Him and trust and repent, I'm not talking about fire insurance. Where you say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus as if belief in Jesus is simply saying, oh yes, I believe that Jesus was real. Or even saying, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for everybody's sins. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross for everybody's sins. Do you believe he died for your sins? That's usually indicated by whether or not you go to him with your sins and ask for forgiveness. If you don't know him, not about him, but if you don't know him, then you need to turn to him today. Ask him to save you, and he will see me after, and we will talk. But if you've done that, you have to choose will you hang on? Do you really believe that God always keeps his promises? And that he'll do the impossible to keep them. Oh, he will. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we praise you for this time that you have given to us. And we pray that you would work in our hearts as a result. Remind us again and again of your goodness, of your love, and of your mercy. If there are any here today that just do not know you. They may know about you, but they don't know you. Please, Father, work a discomfort in them. Oh, let life turn rotten, putrid, undoable. It may seem like a strange thing to ask for, but Father, the difficulties of this life are oh so temporary. Oh so temporary. Instead, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, make them miserable so that they would see how much they need you. And then draw them to yourself. But for those of us that do know you, Remind us that you keep your word. Remind us that you do the impossible. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Now as we close together, let us gather as we sing Bible song number 156. We're talking about God's power to do all things. This points to Christ's dominion. Let's sing it together. Number 156. Please stand with me. Christ shall have dominion in all ways, including we must have dominion in your hearts and in ours. Receive the benediction. May the grace and the peace and the mercy and the love and the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be upon you both now and forevermore. Amen.